Well, good morning, church family. We find ourselves apart one more time, it seems. COVID has made its ugly appearance, but hopefully that'll all be just one week and done. We'll be back together again next week. But today we return to Solomon's letter. Last week we returned to Ecclesiastes. Today we return to Ecclesiastes. We noticed last week as we opened our Bibles to the beginning of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, that Solomon, who is writing this letter, and declared that all is vanity. You may remember in chapter 1, verse 2, he worded, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Notice in one verse, five times one word is used. That word, of course, is vanity. So Solomon is essentially saying in the beginning of the letter that we are examining now for today and for the next several weeks, that every worldly thing, every material item, all the power a person may possess, the prestige, the wealth, the status, everything, all of it, is vanity. It is useless. It is utterly meaningless. Now, he also goes on to say in verse 9 that, well, it's all been done, but there's nothing new under the sun. But as you hear that and maybe contemplate and think about what Solomon is writing about all being vanity, being useless, and that there's nothing new under the sun, maybe you think to yourself, well, that's just one man's opinion. But my feelings are much different than that. I mean, I can find meaning and purpose in things like work and relationships. I mean, maybe Solomon could not, but I can well, if that thought has occurred to you any time in this last week or at any point in life, then today's reading and the message we have for today will definitely speak directly to us. Because Solomon today evaluates very specific things, such as wisdom and education, worldly pleasures and possessions. He looks upon work and labor and a person's career. And he looks then also at wealth great riches, gold and silver. And he concludes once again that these things do not offer true meaning or purpose and happiness in life. Let us read the text today. If we want to read beginning where we left off last week, we read through verse 11. Today we'll pick up more of the reading in verse 12 of the first chapter and then read through the second chapter about the midpoint into verse 11. So today in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting again in verse 12, we read the text, and we'll of course begin to apply, but let us first read. It says in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom 
is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now we go to chapter 2 in verse 1. Solomon continues, and he said, In my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And the pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during those days of their life. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered from myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading of the word. And Lord, today we would just all like to be together, but we continue to look upon the messages we have by examining the words and the wisdom of Solomon. And we position ourselves today, Lord, no matter where we are, to maybe watching or hearing the word, that we would see that there truly is meaning and purpose in life. Lord, we're looking to the words of Solomon, who tried many different things and found it all to be useless. So, Lord, let us gain the understanding that the true meaning and purpose in life is with you and for you. Lead and guide and direct us here today, Lord. Let's have a better understanding of our purpose and meaning. Thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, recall from last week that in the very first chapter, in the 11 verses we looked upon, the Solomon kind of set the stage. I mean, he gave the purpose in which he writes. With all his many experiences in life, he has now concluded that all is vanity, that there is nothing new under the sun. But I found it interesting upon the first 11 verses that we looked upon last week, in which Solomon declared that all is vanity, that everything is meaningless, that he didn't really refer to anything in particular. Oh, yeah, we dissected the text and found a few things, but he really didn't kind of go deep into the subject matter. So his comment, if you will, was kind of vague or maybe more generalized. I mean, some scholars even looked upon the first 11 verses of the beginning of a study into, into Ecclesiastes 
and they will suggest that verses 1 through 11 were made by a final editor who was someone that maybe found that they need to summarize the words of the preacher in the third person in a way to give what the book's message is really about. But if that is the case, now there is no doubt. I mean, starting in verse 12, where we did today, we find that Solomon speaks directly for himself. I mean, notice, if you will, it is written now no longer in the third person, but in the first person, which goes all the way then through all the verses we read into the second chapter through verse 11. I mean, for example, it tells us where we begin today in verse 12, the first person becomes very prominent, where Solomon says, I, the preacher, verse 13 I applied my heart. Verse 14, I have seen everything. And that pattern continues all the way through all the verses we read for this morning. So now by utilizing the first person, Solomon removes any lack of clarity that may have existed and gets now very specific into the things that he considers to be vanity. The things that is meaningless. Or to use the phrase that he introduces in the text today, especially at least three different times, it is all striving after wind. Striving after wind is the English Standard Version's ver uh, portion of what the New, English, New International Version, which I prefer, says chasing after the wind. It's all chasing after the wind. And remember, as, the, as king of Israel, Solomon had all the resources necessary for experimenting with different solutions to find out what made life worth living. Warren Worsby explains, in the laboratory of life, he, Solomon, experimented with enjoying various physical pleasures, accomplishing great and costly works, and accumulating great possessions, only to discover that all of it was only vanity, grasping or chasing after the wind. So then let us take a few moments here this morning, a few minutes to review all the things that now Solomon is actually chasing after the wind. We will find that it is the same things that we tend to chase in our life as we search for meaning and purpose. Before we do, Last week, I was actually driving the bus, as I do each and every day during the week, morning and afternoon. But in the morning session on the very first day, I began to reflect upon the message we had last Sunday, meaning and purpose with the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1. And I began to reflect upon it, and I was driving the bus, and I began to pick up the students for the morning route. And as I began to pick up a few, I went to the next stop and I rode up and all of a sudden I rode to the stop and it's like something began to speak to me. And I began to ask myself, is this my purpose? I mean, is my purpose driving through the countryside on the southwest side of Princeton to pick up some students to take them to school? Is that my purpose? Is that my meaning? So I think that we all, maybe before we do any application, would stop and to hesitate here for just a moment and think about it. Before we look at the text and analyze Solomon's search for meaning, let us think about our life and ask ourselves this very specific question. Are you, are we, filling our purpose in life 
Or are we doing as maybe Solomon had done for quite some time in his life, simply chasing after the wind? Because maybe Solomon's words here, maybe his search that he's had in his life will provide us with some answers. So let us then, as we think about the question, are we feeling our purpose in life or are we chasing after the wind? Let us now consider Solomon's words in his search for meaning. And the first one we go back to the text, we find he's searching for meaning and wisdom. Verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Take down to verse 17 once more. He said, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving or chasing after the wind. In verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So note then as we go back over a few of these verses that twice, we didn't read all of it, but twice in verse 14 and in verse 17, Psalm refers to wisdom or education, as striving or chasing after the wind. He refers to wisdom and education that we strive to receive in life. We get from a, an infant, not from an infant, but from a, a kindergartner, all the way through a senior in high school, and sometimes into a college, learning education, acquiring wisdom all of our life. And now Solomon refers to it as striving after the wind. It brings a question up, at least in my mind, the question being this. Does this mean that Solomon views education and acquiring wisdom as pointless? Because if that's what he's saying, I know a lot of children on the bus I pick up every morning and take home every afternoon that is going to be really, really happy to think they don't need any education. There's no point of it. So I ask myself again, is this what Solomon is saying? Because if it is, well, then he's actually contradicting himself when he wrote Proverbs and actually with other scripture. I mean, consider what he wrote in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. He said, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and one who gets understanding. For the gain from her wisdom is better than gain from silver and profit better than gold. Or maybe what James had worded in his epistle. In chapter 1, verse 5, he said, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we ask again, what is Solomon saying here? I mean, what is he saying then in his search for meaning and purpose as it applies or pertains to wisdom? I mean, how can we make sense of acquiring wisdom are receiving education as chasing after the wind. Dr. Jeremiah asked this question. Was the king soured on education? And he answers, not a bit. He was the best educated man of his generation. His wisdom was legendary. He had pursued wisdom wherever it could be found. Yet to his surprise, the more he learned, the emptier he felt. Now, to paraphrase Dr. Jeremiah's comment, perhaps a person 
is that maybe a person who is bent on a lifelong quest for education eventually learns it's not the end-all, be-all in life. That maybe they eventually see that there is more. Maybe at some point, the quest and search for education becomes less important. Maybe at some time in a person's life, it comes for a time of realization that purpose of meaning in life is not found in a constant search for higher education, but rather is found in living a godly life and leading others to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's our meaning and purpose, to, to receive wisdom and knowledge, but to lead people to Christ rather than acquiring their entire life for education and knowledge. Now, as you hear that, let me kind of say this too, because I don't want you to get me wrong. I mean, I, I don't want you to hear this later or to, to go and tell others, you know, that crazy preacher at Crossroads, he, he actually said that there's no meaning, no purpose for education and wisdom. I mean, I'm not saying that education is meaningless. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue wisdom. We shouldn't acquire wisdom. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have that. But whether the constant search for meaning in our life, for purpose, is not found in acquiring all the education of the world. Maybe an example will clear things up. And this may date me. But I know some people who are listening or watching will remember encyclopedias. Encyclopedias aren't really used so much today, but some people are going to remember encyclopedias. And, and with that thought, some others are going to remember the time in which there used to be a salesman who would come to your house and try to sell Encyclopedia Britannica. If you were able to listen to the salesman and he convinced you to buy the encyclopedia, it meant that there would be volumes that would arrive by mail, maybe each and every month, that would provide you, your family, your children, all the information you ever needed to know. It gave you everything. But here's the question as we think about the encyclopedia. How many people read them from cover to cover? How many people spent their entire day reading the thrilling information in the newly purchased Encyclopedia Britannica? How many people was at the doorstep waiting for the mailman to come up, excited about this new volume of the encyclopedia, grabbed it, started reading it nonstop throughout the day? I mean, my guess is very few people probably did that. But why didn't we? I mean, didn't we buy them or borrow them or somehow read them, thinking it would be the best, it would make us the, the, the most smarter person that we could possibly be, it would help our children's education and strive to make them a better person? We, we didn't read it from cover to cover or all day long. I mean, and my guess is probably because we finally discovered that there were other things in life that could provide you with a sense of purpose rather than taking all day and reading the Encyclopedia Britannica from cover to cover. We, we eventually found and realized that there was meaning and purpose wasn't found in obtaining a mass amount of reading in that volume of an encyclopedia. So Solomon now, we go back to the text, is essentially saying the same thing. There is, certainly, certainly, there is a need for education and wisdom. 
But the constant quest for education does not define your purpose. Years ago, there was a 17-year-old girl from Fremont, California, named Karen Ching. She did something that nobody had ever done. She achieved a perfect score of 800 on both sections of the SAT test. She further then applied to University of California and took the college entrance exam and achieved a perfect score of 8,000 on that particular exam. That had never been done before. Perfect scores on both sections of the SAT and a perfect score on a college entrance examination. I mean, so she was brilliant, extremely gifted in education and knowledge. I mean, her teachers in high school called her Wonder Woman, and she excelled in everything that they taught her, making perfect scores and straight A's. And then because then of her unfathomable perfection exams, again, it had never been done before, she would often be the subject of an interview. At one particular press conference, a reporter asked her, what is the meaning of life? Well, Karen's reply with all her immense knowledge, all of her perfect education and scores that she obtained, her reply was, I have no idea. In fact, I would like to know myself. Now, the point of Karen's story is that in Karen's life, with all of her perfect scores, the knowledge that she had, which surpassed everyone, that could not provide her with the meaning of life. I mean, Solomon, as we look upon his life, was similar. He had every possible avenue of education that was available at that particular time. But it did not fill the void in his heart. It did not offer meaning and purpose in his life. He, he says, essentially, it was chasing after the wind. So he considers something else in his search for meaning and purpose. And he searches for meaning in worldly pleasures. It's verses 1 through 3 in the second chapter. Let's look again at verse 1. For Solomon said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, he says, this also was vanity. When it came to pleasure, Solomon had it all at his disposal. I mean, the man built an incredible palace that makes any modern-day mansion just look like an outhouse. I mean, the elaborate palace that he built was comprised of 11,250 square feet. It had stairways, pillars, posts, curtains, courtyards made of rare and costly materials. Gold was found everywhere in this design. In fact, other precious stones from Africa were imported and placed throughout the palace. Solomon used almond and sandalwood from India. He used ivory from Africa and from India. And he had cedars, cedars come in from Lebanon. I mean, the palace was awe-inspiring. In fact, it has been estimated that the palace, if it was placed in today's currency, the value of the palace that Solomon built would have been an astonishing $216 trillion in value. So this is where he lived. This is where he sought pleasures each and every day that were constantly in and around him. 
maybe the best way we could ever try to imagine his palace that he built, this 216 trillion mansion, was to maybe place ourselves or to get an image of Caesar's palace in Las Vegas that has all the bright lights, the music constantly playing, truckloads of wine, entertainment of plenty. I mean, the man Solomon himself had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, he had access to anything and to everything. It was all at his fingertips. But seeking worldly pleasures was not filling the void in his heart. Solomon was trying to find happiness, but it was failing. He was failing miserably to find happiness in all the worldly pleasures. Now, that reminds me of Phil Robertson. Phil Robertson, you may know, is the patriarch of the dynasty. But Robertson, you know, he turned his life to Christ in the mid-70s, the mid-1970s. But before he turned his life to Christ, Phil Robertson, by his own testimony, will tell you he had lived very recklessly, experimenting in life and trying many different worldly pleasures, including a great amount of alcohol and great many women. I mean, he was similar in some respect to what we find here with Solomon. Solomon tried all these worldly pleasures at his disposal. Phil Robertson was a great athlete, and he got it with the wrong crowd and tried all these different things in life. And he concluded essentially the same thing as Solomon. But it's all chasing after the wind. In the end, Solomon had all these things available to him, but he said, it's, it's vanity, it's meaningless, it's worthless. So if he couldn't find meaning and purpose in seeking worldly pleasures, he considered something else. So we go back to the text and find him searching for meaning and work. Verses 4 through 6 of the second chapter. He says in his own words, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So similar here to his search for meaning in worldly pleasures, we now find that he set out to find purpose in his life through work and through labor. More specifically, as he says in his own words, in building and erecting. And last week, we briefly touched upon the subject of work. But in three verses today, Solomon very specifically, very precisely, tells us about the work that he feels proud to have achieved. He, he says of houses and of vineyards, of gardens and parks and of pools. I mean, in other words, he built an impressive list of things that would make any developer very jealous. But note the words that he says in these verses. It is always I and for myself. I mean, seven times in three verses, he uses the words I or myself. That's pretty observant, but what does that mean? I mean, what, what does all that mean? In fact, he kept saying I or myself. What it means, he did it truly all for himself. I mean, instead of building and erecting and establishing the, these lush gardens and these buildings and all these things for God, for the glory of God, he did it all for himself. 
why did he do it for himself? I mean, not that he had an incredible ego, but rather he did it for himself because he was trying to find purpose and meaning. And he failed in finding meaning in any of the work of building. So most of us, as we apply that thought, we don't necessarily build, but we do work. And many times we try to obtain purpose and meaning in and through our work. Now, admittedly, work can be temporarily satisfying. We all like to hear that we did well from our supervisor. We appreciate the recognition of a job well done. It allows us to have a sense of accomplishment. But it can nearly also lead to an obsession, partly because we think that it will provide us with purpose and meaning. But work should not define you. In the movie Overcomer, there is a coach by the name of John Harrison who defines himself as the school's basketball coach. But during the movie, there is a, a situation that develops in which the major manufacturer of the town leaves, which then has a lot of the families to leave the town, which then has a domino effect to John Harrison and his basketball team because many of the boys have left the town with their parents and family to find new employment. So as the movie continues, again, John defines his life, his meaning, his purpose by being a basketball coach. The principal of the school asked John to become the cross-country coach. And John is hesitant, very reluctant to become the cross-country coach. Remember, he defines himself as the basketball coach. But he admits that he needs to do something, and he takes on the responsibility of being the cross-country coach. The only problem is he knows nothing about cross-country. In fact, he goes to the tryouts on the very first day, and the effect that the major manufacturer had on leaving the town of the coach losing his basketball team has a similar effect on the cross-country team, and to which only one girl named Hannah Scott comes out to be the runner. He argues with the principal. The principal says, one runner, still got a team. So John has to have a crash course in knowing how to coach cross-country. So it happens that he goes to a hospital for a visit with his pastor. As he's at the hospital, he stumbles into the room of a man who is dying but used to run cross-country. So John, the basketball coach, now cross-country coach, becomes friends with the man who is lying in the hospital. And they visit each other often. John realizes that the man in the hospital can help him become a cross-country coach. So for one particular visit, a very important part of the movie, you find John walking into the hospital room. As he walks into the hospital room, the man lying in the bed asks John a very direct question. Who are you? John is kind of stumbled. I mean, he really hadn't thought I got about the question before, I guess. So the man asked him again, John, who are you? And John answers the way that he defines himself as the basketball coach for the local high school. The man says, 
That's what you do. That's not who you are. See, the point is, so many times in life, we define who we are, our purpose and meaning, by what work we do. But the work should not define us. I mean, if we look to work as our ultimate purpose in life, then we'll eventually become like Solomon and find that there still is a void in our heart. That we have not found the ultimate purpose and meaning. And that we're still, like Solomon, chasing after the wind. Again, the point here is that work, although it can be satisfying, should not define us. It does not give us ultimate purpose and meaning. So Solomon, then saying is chasing after the wind, tries yet one more avenue for finding purpose and meaning. And his last one then is searching for meaning and wealth. Verses 7 through 11, let's look at 7 and 8. He said, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. And considering wealth, Solomon actually proves, disproves the myth. He proves the myth is, is meaningless. That, that people say there's, there's going to be, in all the world, in all the things you ever want to obtain, get some wealth, get some money. But Solomon proves and destroys that myth. That there's not to be found purpose and meaning in acquiring wealth. There's not purpose in that. There's not even happiness in that. In fact, I was thinking about this last week. So I took a moment and Googled the question. The question being, what country do you think has the happiest citizens? I found a CBS news study that gave the answer. Fifteen top countries in the CBS news study. Again, the question, what country do you think has the happiest citizens? The, among the top 15 countries, the number one country or the country that has the happiest citizens was Denmark. Denmark. Second on the list of the top 15 countries that have the happiest citizens was Canada. And that was a little surprising. But now I'm intrigued. I go further. The third, in the third place of the countries that have the happiest citizens was Norway. Denmark, Canada, Norway. I begin to think to myself, where's the United States? So I look in position number four. Position number four of the happiest citizens in the world was a four-way tie. The tie was with Switzerland, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Australia. So I'm thinking, wow, I would have thought the United States would certainly have been in the top four, top five, but I'm still not seeing the United States. So now I'm really intrigued. I'm thinking, where is the United States? Again, the question is, what country do you think has the happiest citizens? And I have not found yet the United States. So I've digged even deeper. Is the top 15 countries, the United States was 12th in a tie 
with New Zealand. I'm thinking, wow, I mean, here we are, the luckiest people on the planet. I mean, there's, I mean as Americans, we have, we have essentially everything in life. I mean, people want to come to America. But America is 12th on the list of the top 15 countries that have the happiest citizens. So I began to ask myself, well, what, what does that prove? And, and I thought, well, it demonstrates that happiness is not tied to income. In fact, I actually dig deeper and I found that the desire, the study showed, the desire for material goods, which has increased hand in hand with average income, is a happiness suppressant. The desire for goods as we want to have in our life, as we gain more income, is a happiness suppressant. I'm thinking, that's amazing. Because when you begin to think about it, we want everything and we have everything. But then you really begin to think about it being a suppressant, it begins to make sense because it seems then the more we have, the more we want. Nothing is ever satisfying. Just ask your children. They always want more. But as adults, we still do too. We always want more. So I began to think about the rich fool and Luke chapter 12, and Jesus telling all the people, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Solomon's life proved this to be true. He had a great, staggering abundance of material goods and possessions and income. And that's just not just conjecture. I mean, listen to the scripture the actual course for us to have complete understanding of the abundance of Solomon's wealth and possessions. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, it tells us the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly. It's his yearly annual income was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. He gets aged every year 666 talents of gold. Now, in current dollars, that is the equivalent of $304 million per year. And that does not include any silver that he had at that time because the silver was in such abundance, it was not even considered valuable. As 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 21 tells us. Note, if you will, in chapter 10, verse 22, he not only had all that wealth and all that yearly income, he had this great fleet of trading ships, but verse 23 really tells us what we need to know. That King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Verse 23 sums up his income, his wealth, that it surpassed any other person on the face of the earth. But it wasn't just his wealth. He had numerous possessions besides the fleet of trading ships we found in verse 22. We also learn further in 1 Kings 10, verse 26. That Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400, 1,400 chariots. 12,000 horses, which he kept 
in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. 12,000 horses. Who needs 12,000 horses? Verse 28 tells us that some of his horses were imported from Egypt. Incredible the things that he had in life. I mean, suffice it to say that Solomon truly had it all. Everything under the sun was his. But he determined it was all vanity. It's all meaningless. It is utterly meaningless. In, in today's language, Solomon could have said, I, he said, I, I had it all. And I, not just I had it all, but I had it my way. And I climbed to the highest peaks of human achievement. But the only thing I sought, the one thing I sought, was never within my grasp. That's how a lot of us live life. We seem to have as much as we could possibly imagine. And then we even want more. And we want it our way. We search for meaning and purpose. Never finding it. By looking up at Solomon, we find that he made a timeless error that many people in life also commit. I mean, in his quest for meaning, for purpose, he, he had he, he sought out many different things and had many different experiences. I mean, we reviewed today he had knowledge and he had wisdom like no other. He had numerous worldly pleasures. Yes, he built magnificent, beautiful palaces and these buildings had lush gardens and vineyards. And yes, he had unparalleled wealth. But it was all in vain. The object of his search to find meaning and purpose was ultimately found to be unavailable under the sun. So yes, he was truly chasing after the wind. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Do you find yourselves chasing after the wind the same as Solomon had done in his life? And still, each and every time, coming up empty-handed to find true meaning and purpose? If that's where we find ourselves, then we need to take a page from the book of Ecclesiastes. And from the experiences we read about Solomon, because what he was searching for, what you are searching for, is found right here. It is here, available today. Yeah, we're not together. We're watching and listening, however it may be. But if you're watching, listening, and you're still searching for meaning and purpose, you're trying all these different things, take a page from the book of Ecclesiastes. And... and the words of Solomon as he's chased after wind that everything you're trying in life is all vanity, is all utterly meaningless. And the only way you'll ever find true meaning and purpose is with Jesus. And that is available now. Find Jesus today. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today as it points us to the truth that we need to receive. We live life, and life happens. We get caught up in pursuing worldly pleasures and 
wealth and and all these things. But today, Lord, we're given that reminder that there's truly only one thing to pursue. There's truly only one thing that would define us in life. And as that, as we are follower, a believer, a Christian. Lord, I pray today for people who are watching and listening. Particularly for someone, Lord, who has never found Christ. That they today will find Jesus. Later today, Lord, maybe the people will be watching and listening to the message. And I pray you'll speak directly to the person that you have chosen. Draw them close to you now, Lord. Draw them very close to you. Penetrate their heart. Cut them, Lord, of their sin. As they're searching, I pray today, Lord, they find, they find you. So thank you for this message today. And thank you for the work you're going to do in and through us. Let you get the glory for always saying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.